It's old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week with some Friday the 13th true crime. <laughs> Before we get to that, uh, you'll hear more about the Patreon later in the episode, but Amber told me a fascinating story in our continuing Aurora Slayings series. And, oh my gosh, this mystery is driving me crazy. I'm telling you, Aurora is a cult. There is a cult in Aurora of probably like Freemasons and maybe even for generations and generations. Because in in a quick Google search, I just found that in uh, the 90s, they had triple the rate of murder of everywhere else in the country. Like what the hell was going on there? It's so weird. There, there's a cult. And if you don't fit in, you die. <laughs> And I definitely am getting to the point where I need my bulletin board and my string. Because <laughs> I keep on tying one thing to one case and one thing to another case. And yeah, I need my bulletin board and my string. I'm going to set that up this week. <laughs> we need to do it. We need to do it. So the tiny was actually about a lovely woman in Chicago. But she has some ties to Aurora and a lawsuit or two for a powerful man in Aurora. Did the doctor do it? Did the doctor peanut? <laughs> This is a nutty doctor. It is a nutty doctor. He had a diet of just peanuts. Literally. So That's gross. Just awful. Like, I would lose my will to live if I could only eat one thing for like two or three months. One bland, unseasoned thing for months. Yeah, variety is the spice of life, and literally, you have no spices there. It's, yeah. Raw peanuts. Ugh. That's it. All right, so shall we talk about the man that I am calling an entitled douche biscuit? Yes, let's talk about this entitled douche biscuit. Okay, so if you are listening to this on the day it comes out, it is Friday the 13th. So we have brought it up a case where something happens in the case on Friday the 13th and you won't know what it is until we get there. But it is not Friday the 13th for us. Because we live in the past. We do live in the past. Ooh, <laughs> really? Spooky. <laughs> oh, just a note. We normally don't do very much in the way of content warnings or anything like that. But this story just has an almost unbelievable number of references to suicide. So I just wanted to point that out in case anybody, you know, is, is a little sensitive to that. So trigger warning. Yes, absolutely. Because, it, yeah, it's just, it's so much. <laughs> so we are talking about... Robert Van Brunt, who would eventually get the nickname Happy Bob. I really just want to call him like Banana Sandwich because I just learned that phrase this week and it makes me so very happy. <laughs> Banana Sandwich Bob? Banana Sandwich Bob. <laughs> so he was born in England in 1863. He goes by Robert or Bob Van Brunt, but later... He said, oh, by the way, my real name is Smith. And his grandmother took him in eventually. And when that happened, he said he took her name of Brunt and then added the van to make it sound more aristocratic. I can understand that because my son, I gave the middle name of Vaughn, V-O-N, to sound like he's going to take over your country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. He also said that he added the Van to his name later, quote, knowing that the Van Brunt family were descendants of kings of England and were of royal blood, which I do not believe that is true. 
But if you say it convincingly enough. Yes, yes. And apparently he did. It's all you got to do. He also sometimes claimed to be the adopted son of nobility who was banished after a life of royal style and a tragic fall from grace. You know what, though? I feel like maybe back in the day that was just what people did is lie about stuff like that because I never looked into, like, my genealogy, but I have been told that we were descendants from royalty where, like, our ancestor was an indentured servant to the king of Norway and then she fell pregnant and was shipped over to the United States. Is that true? I have no idea. I'm a little too busy right now to look into it. (laughs) I guess it could be, but if you're, like... A bastard child of royalty, pretty sure they're going to sweep that under the rug. Oh, yeah, for sure. You're not going to find that on a birth certificate anywhere. (laughs) That is fascinating. So uh, another thing that's fascinating is that I looked up the whole van thing. Oh, God. I have heard that it is or was at one point used as an indicator of nobility. And so van, when placed between a first name and a last name, is called a... Tusevossel in Dutch. Okay. And it seems like this is true in like Dutch and German because it kind of meant of. So, you know, uh, John of Gaunt is of Gaunt. Basically, like, claims ownership of that place. I don't know if John of Gaunt actually owned Gaunt, but I'm just using that as an example. So this is Robert of Brunt? Yes, yes, apparently. (laughs) The I I think Brunt of Robert is probably (laughs) more accurate here. Oh, we all get the brunt of his weirdness. At some point, he had a hip injury during his childhood, and that left him with a limp. In addition, he would have seizures at some point, but it's unclear if that started in childhood or was something that developed later on. And his childhood was kind of turbulent. His father was pretty much absent as he worked for the Queen's Scots guards. I'm going to make a terrible joke. Their job is to maintain her upholstery. I thought it. I thought it too. I mean, Scots guards, Scotch guard. Yeah. It's just right there. And I'm so lazy that I have to just grab the low hanging fruit. But we were also just talking about the people with like plastic over their furniture last night. Yes. Yes, we were. (laughs) It's just embedded in your head from, from our drinking conversations. It really is. Yeah. But really, the Scots Guards have been around since 1642, probably long before Scotch Guard. And they act in both a combat and a guard role. These are the ones who wear the big bearskin hat and the red tunic at the, at the castles. Oh, the ones you always want to mess with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The ones you try to, like, make them smile. Yeah. Tickle, tickle, tickle. What's less cute is they also have the occasional massacre. As you do. Yeah, yeah. Like in uh, now Malaysia, when they killed 24 unarmed villagers after subjecting them to psychological torture via mock executions. So they were like, we're going to pretend to execute you, and then we're going to really do it. Interesting. So, yeah, they did generally stay out of trouble aside from that, and of course during the troubles. Nobody stayed out of trouble during the troubles. I didn't even mean for that to happen. Sometimes I'm not thinking when I type up up my notes. That's all right. I like it. (laughs) So around the time of Bob Van Brunt's birth, the Scots Guards were deployed to New Brunswick, Canada as reinforcements in case any issues rose up because that was right when the Civil War was happening in America. 
they're like, we're going to just send some dudes over to Canada just in case those crazy Americans. Got to protect Canada. Yeah. National treasures. <laughs> Absolutely. Van Brunt's mother died when he was 10 years old, and his grandmother then took him in. They stuck around England for another five years or so before hopping a ship to Canada. And there they ended up in 1878 in Toronto, and Van Brunt started working as a tailor. Now, he has another version of his bio that he gives, in which he was in rural England in his youth, apprenticed to a tailor, then ran away to London, where he had his first suicide attempt, jumping into the Thames River. And he said he was arrested and confined for this. He also told everyone that after that, he went overseas in 1880, matching up with the other story, found a job as a tailor, and then had a second suicide attempt, this time using laudanum. Then he ran into a guy named Hammond. So this was Edward Payson Hammond. He was a religious revivalist and evangelist. He was a little over 30 years older than Van Brunt. He was actually ordained the same year that Van Brunt was born. He seemed to be particularly successful in converting children, you know, religiously. It seems that that was a theological question at the time as to whether and how you could do that, whether it would actually last, and this was his deal. He was, he was good at that. He wrote a bunch of hymns and some books. Some of them went international. The Conversion of Children was printed in India. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I don't like it. I don't like it. That definitely sounds like a cult manual. We're just full of cults today. We really are. It's getting culty in here. He ended up not just working throughout all of the U.S. and Canada, including being the first missionary in what was then the Alaskan Territory. He also worked all over the world. Great Britain, France, Italy, Egypt, Palestine. He influenced the beginning of the Children's Special Service Mission in London, which is now known as the Scripture Union. He had a lot of success and influence there, even though he was a little controversial. And then at some point, he hit up Canada and had some success there. And Van Brunt went to one of these revivalist meetings. And this particular approach to religion just really rang his bell. He was so into it. And apparently his enthusiasm was so impressive that Hammond had him come up on stage and speak. Newspapers also reported that he lectured on temperance. That'll be ironic later. Yeah, yeah. Hammond left Toronto, and it seemed like everything went downhill for Van Brunt after that. He lost his job, was dealing with some mental health issues. I actually have a little story from his job in Toronto. Oh, okay, excellent, because I don't have a whole lot on Toronto. So his boss told a story about Happy Bob. Bob. He wasn't Happy Bob yet, I don't believe. He was working as a tailor there. And his boss says, I always found Van Brunt to be honest, industrious, and sober. He had some peculiarities of manner, would stop short in his work, put his hands to his head, and there would be a glassy appearance to his eyes. At one time, I believe on the 13th of February, 1882, he was at work in the back room. I was in the front and I heard Robert call out, there goes my mother. One of the girls said, Robert, that cannot be, as your mother is dead. 
He said, there she is, and I must follow. Then I heard steps going down the stairs. The girls ran in and told me that Robert had gone toward the river. I then ran after him and caught hold of him. He said he must go to his mother. I told him his mother was not there, and he said, yes, she is there, pointing to the river. Wow. I called assistance, and after much difficulty, we carried him to my own house. There he again made an effort to get away, but I succeeded in preventing him. Then we sent for a physician, Dr. Robinson, now dead. Time out. What the fuck? (laughs) Who said he was suffering from acute mania. I afterward, with help, took him in a wagon to the general hospital. During the encounter with him and trying to get him away from the river, he said, if I had my bloody pistol with me, I'd shoot you. Hmm. I afterward told him that I was his best friend. He continued to point toward the river, declaring his mother was there. At one time, when in my employ, I heard a heavy fall in a room where he was. And upon going in, I found Robert on the floor with hands clenched, limbs rigid, and frothing at the mouth. He continued unconscious nearly all night. On the next day, I advised him to go to the hospital because he seemed very bad. He said he would go and see his grandmother first. It's interesting. So it seems like he has hallucinations. He saw his mother and he tried to jump in the river to get to her. You have to wonder if that was when he jumped in the Thames too, if that was another vision that he had, another hallucination. And there was nobody there to hear it and to stop him. Yeah. And. Because I actually didn't know about the first river. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, wait, wait, no, we're talking different countries, completely different rivers. Yeah, that very well might be uh, suicide attempt number three. But I don't even know if it was really like, because it's not consciously trying to commit suicide. He believes that he sees his mother and is trying to follow her. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting that also the seizures seem to be either before, after, during these hallucinations. This seems like epilepsy to me. Oh, sure. I don't, I don't know how much or how often epilepsy and hallucinations are comorbidities. I don't think it's that frequent, but I just wonder if, you know, maybe he got hit on the head as a kid. It caused some damage, and it, both of the, these things are, are the, the result. Oh, and I did double check uh, because you said for February 13th, and I was like, that's not our Friday the 13th. I wonder. And so I looked it up. It was a Monday. <laughs> Yeah, that was not that was not the Friday the thirteenth. Sorry to scare you guys. Yeah. I think that he only remembered the date probably because it was like the day before St. Valentine's Day. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And so or it was maybe somebody's birthday and you're like, oh, I remember it was February the thirteenth, because it seemed really weird that he would remember the date. Yeah. I'm wondering if this was right before he ended up in the hospital. Because there are reports that he was in the hospital in Toronto. But they never bring up the reasons. Was it an actual injury? Was it this particular, you know, I see my mother, I'm going to try and jump in the river. And then the epilepsy happening afterwards. So after that, it, he did go on to say that they lived together too. So he was renting a room from his boss. His boss did say that he was away for a few weeks. Okay, all right. Afterwards. So I wonder if he didn't get committed for a small time. Because he was in the hospital. And apparently one night he just leapt out of bed 
and tried to throw himself over the banister of a spiral staircase. Yes. Which, if you, if you do that from the, the center, if you go down the center, that's the thumpiest way to die. Like, it's just, ah. And uh, the Montreal Gazette said, quote, the nurse who prevented him from carrying out his suicidal intent died not long afterward from the shock. And then, at some point, he joined the Salvation Army, which was a fairly new organization. It actually was younger than he was. It was formed in London in 1865, and the stated mission of the Salvation Army is, quote, the advancement of the Christian religion of education, the relief of poverty, and other charitable objects beneficial to society or the community of mankind as a whole. And they use, you know, military-like ranks, and that's one of the notable features of the Salvation Army. Started when William Booth preached a sermon outside the Blind Beggar, which is now a pub and back then was a tavern. You know, same thing, in type deal thing. But uh, there we go. We got the blind beggar. That led him to starting the East London Christian Mission, which then turned into the Salvation Army. Nowadays, let's just say that the controversy section of the Salvation Army's Wikipedia page is uh, pretty long. It's pretty extensive. It's currently over 3,000 words. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Here are just the headings, just for some interesting (laughs) controversies. Stance on LGBT issues. Canadian charity work, proselytizing during government-funded social service in New York, Australian sex abuse cases, unpaid labor in the UK, racism guide, and rogue landlord allegations. Rogue landlord allegations, I think, is the name of my new new wave album. See, in my head, I'm just picturing a group of rogue landlords. Evict them all! I could write a poetry book called Rogue Landlord Allegations. Let's do it. So the paper said that, quote, at the Salvation Army meetings, and this is speaking of Van Brunt, he attracted considerable attention by his excitable ways. He produced some sensation at religious meetings by getting considerably wrought up and then falling insensible. And they related this to his seizures, which it probably was. I've known exactly one person with epilepsy um, ongoing, and it seemed like theirs could be triggered by uh, being startled or getting overexcited, stuff like that. I don't know if that's across the board or not. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm reading about it right now because that, that question to me was just like, could these hallucinations and seizures be one in the same thing? And so that's, that's actually what I'm like, as you're talking, I'm like, it seems like it really could be related, especially because he would also complain of terrible, terrible migraines. Oh, I didn't know about the migraines either. One of, one of his bosses said that um, he'd seen him faint a few times, had him take a, an epileptic fit a few times, mm. and he would always complain of headaches. And this was where he worked when he poisoned himself. And the boss was like, why are you always trying to kill yourself? And he said, I am sick and tired of living. Wow. Yeah, I, it's really interesting that those two can be tied together, the hallucinations and the seizures. That's fascinating. I, I'm going to have to Six. read for hours to get to the bottom of this, mm-hmm. but just from a cursory glance, it looks like they totally could be intertwined. And this is why we do 
each of us independent research. Yeah. Because each of us finds things that the other didn't. <laughs> I fall down weird rabbit holes sometimes. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. I fell down the Salvation Army rabbit hole. I fell down the Hammond rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I very actively avoided those. <laughs> I wanted to give context. You can avoid those because you know that I'll fall, fall down them. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to have to trip on this. Christy will come along in a second trip on it. Yeah, I was like, this seems really boring. Christy will get this. <laughs> that is me. I yes. found some gossip, so I'm going this way. <laughs> nice. So he was also later described as, quote, very excitable and terribly quick-tempered. And it was noted that he always carried a revolver. That's a good combination. Mm-hmm. Bodes well. Bodes well. And it seems like around the time he was in the Salvation Army was when he was nicknamed Happy Bob, which seemed to be sort of an irony. <laughs> Very active irony. He attempted to woo a Salvation Army girl in Toronto, and when she rejected him, he attempted suicide. He told the police in the court that he was a member of the Salvation Army, but the Salvation Army was like, nope, he's, he's not one of ours. We uh-uh. don't know him. So he was arrested for the attempt, although they did drop the charge. This was sort of a trend. Uh, on Murder by Gaslight, Robert Wilhelm says that Van Brunt may have had as many as 15 engagements and five suicide attempts. That is uh, impressive. He's he's busy. Or uh, as the, the shut as the Chattanooga Daily Times put it, quote, he mashed girls in Toronto where he tried to suicide. Possibly the weirdest sentence. He mashed girls in Toronto where he tried to suicide. Yes. We learned in the old-timey newspapers last week that mashing was flirting. But when you put it like that, when you say someone mashed girls, it sort of sounds like they're a serial killer. <laughs> Banana sandwich Bob. Yeah. And so in March 1885, he ended up in court again, this time on an assault charge, and he was fined for that. It seems like possibly he was inspired by Hammond and did some of his own revival speeches or meetings, but I don't have a lot that I was able to find on that. And then he went to America. Thanks, Canada and England. Send this douche biscuit our way. So uh, the papers said his grandmother was still living in Ontario, living with a son-in-law. And we don't have a name or anything, so we're not sure if that would be actually Van Brunt's father, because we don't know if the grandmother, or at least I don't know, if she was paternal or maternal. And even if she was the maternal grandmother, she could have had another daughter who was also married, and the son-in-law lived with her. So it seemed like once he got to America, Happy Bob picked up again with the Salvation Army. He was traveling with them with the rank Lieutenant. Lieutenant Happy Bob. <laughs> Although Lieutenant Van Brunt does have a ring. It does. Yeah, it rings all right. The group he was with crossed the border and started doing their thing in western New York State. So they were working kind of between Buffalo and Rochester, a few smallish towns like Wyoming, uh, the village, not the state, Warsaw, the town, not the Polish capital, Castile, the town, not the former Spanish kingdom, and Leroy, which I think we need to go to Leroy. What is in Leroy? Because you are smiling very big. (laughs) Do you know what was invented in Leroy? No. I'll give you a hint. It features in a lot of the recipes 
that we talk about. Jello. Jello. Leroy is the birthplace of Jello. I don't know why, but I just got the mental image of like a, a giant wall of Jello that you have to like climb through to get into the museum. That sounds fantastic. I kind of hope it exists. And I also kind of don't. I'm of two minds here as well, yes. It was invented in 1897, and they have a Jell-O museum where they sell vintage Jell-O cookbooks in the gift shop. Oh my God, but do they have the lobster cock mold? I need it. I doubt it. It seems like it's a little more family-friendly than that, but maybe they do. Who knows? Well, no. Okay, so this mold is supposed to, supposed to look like a lobster with two claws and a little bit of a tail. But when you actually make jello in it, it looks like a cock and balls. <laughs> and I need this jello mold in my life to make the most disgusting meatloafs you have ever seen. <laughs> I need it. Sounds horrifying. I know. It's so terrible. I need it. I'm looking at their website. For the museum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have their store listed on there. They have a jello chef's hat. They have an apron. It says Jello, watch it wiggle, see it jiggle. <laughs> I don't know that I want to wear that apron, Jello. Right? They have a Jello Christmas ornament. Uh, I'm not seeing any. Damn. I'm not seeing any lobster cock. Well, I feel like this was when this was made. It is made of copper and it is quite old. Mm hmm. And I think they realized their design flaw. Hold on. I'm, I'm getting a picture for Christy here. So, oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's supposed to be a lobster, but it really does look like it is ribbed for her pleasure. Yeah, just Google. I think probably I'm imagining lobster jello mold. Lobster vintage jello mold. Okay. And it will come up and you will see why I need it. You can also get Jello jiggle boxers that say Jello, watch it wiggle, see it jiggle. I think Jackson needs these. <laughs> watch it wiggle, see it jiggle. Why don't they have ladies? Come on. I want some undies that say watch it wiggle, see it jiggle. <laughs> oh my goodness. What are you thinking? You're thinking something. I'm trying to figure out what would be jiggling. <laughs> That's the fun. <laughs> That's why it's and amusing. I'm a little scared. <laughs> As you should be. So, yes, I think we need to take a road trip. It's about five hours from here. I am down. <laughs> we need to go there. So, anyhow, back to Van Brunt, now that we've taken that little jello diversion. <laughs> I was so excited when I found that out. You have no idea. I've been, like, jumping at the bit waiting for us to record because I was like, Jello Museum! <laughs> I, I I am down. Just, <sighs> if nothing else, to say that I went. Exactly, exactly. I need a Jello Museum coffee mug. So the newspapers say that Van Brunt left the group in Leroy, home of Jello, around. He's, he just stayed for the Jello molds. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't invented yet, but maybe they were on their way with the molds. Uh, around July 4th of 1886, he then went to Tonawanda, New York, where he'd previously spent some time working as a tailor, but this time he got to work at a lumberyard. And he was getting into a little bit of trouble in 1886. There were arrests for drunkenness, 
getting goods under false pretenses. At this point, he's described as, quote, about 24 years of age, of light complexion, and decidedly English in appearance. Well, he's English, so... Yeah, right? So he had light hair, and uh, this... He is a bright-looking fellow, but has an evil look in his eyes. Oh. <laughs> and then he limps from a lame hip and has had epileptic fits. The newspaper said this. Then in September, he ended up back in Castile. So we're going to settle down in Castile for a little while. In 1880, about six years before he ended up there, it had a population of 2,315. And it was there that he met a young woman named Eva Roy at a skating rink. Actually, he met her in Warsaw, I'm sorry, when he was with the Salvation Army. And they wrote some letters back and forth. And she lived in Castile. When he came there, he ended up boarding with her family. So after she met him, she then saw him while on an errand at a tailor shop. Which I feel like that was sort of planned somehow in a way. He's wild enough that he could have planned it. Yeah, yeah. He asked her if he could call on her and then did so that night. The next time she saw him was at a church festival where she said he was drunk and she talked to him about it. She gave him a little talking to because her family were also Salvation Army enthusiasts. Well, and so that was really weird to me, though, that that he would be drunk because his previous boss was like, no, he was he was always sober. He didn't drink at all. Hmm. But, I mean, that was years before, so things could have changed. He also once lectured on temperance, so, apparently. Eva Roy's parents didn't feel like Van Brunt was a good match for her, or even a very good person. So, at first, they tried to break it up, but then they kind of gave up, and then he boarded with them. Weird. So, let's talk a little bit about the, the Roy family. Her parents were Simon Roy... Uh, He was obviously her father. He was a carriage painter, quote, well-known and respected resident of Castile. And at this point, he was on his third marriage. The children uh, that are germane to this story are, of course, Eva and Will. So let's talk about Will. He was born in 1867, so that would make him 19 at this point. Although some papers put his age as, quote, about 21. Close enough. Yeah. He was born from Simon's second marriage, which was to Polly, who died that same year. Uh, She was, actually, she died in February. We don't have a birthday for him, but that's only two months into the year. I'm just kind of assuming childbirth. It's really interesting looking at the family history on Find a Grave, because when Will was born, Simon's other son born 11 years before, and also named Will, was still alive. Oh, I don't like that. You have two Wills in the same family, 11 years apart. Yep, gotta kill one. Well, that, yeah, he, he died in 1876, when the Will of our tale was only nine, so I guess this is like a slow-acting Highlander situation. Yeah, there can be only one. And this, uh, this Will is the strongest. Simon remarried literally the same year that the second Will's mother died, About nine months later. Did not take him long. 
You know what, though? It was almost necessity back then. So, like, they didn't marry for love. It was literally like, I need somebody to take care of all these children. And have more. And have more. Um, so let's get married. Yeah, and she she would uh, have quite a few more. Just Simon and this third wife, just that marriage, produced ten children. Jesus. They were quite prolific at the baby making. So most of our listeners are probably related to this family. <laughs> probably, yeah. They were, they were good at procreation. The other child germane to our story is, of course, Eva. She was born Evangeline in 1870. This made her 16 when she knew Happy Bob. In fact, she had just turned 16 in September. And Bob was living there in October, so he might have even been around when her 16th birthday happened. Creepy. Yeah. Because he is in his mid-20s at this point. She is described by the press... As, quote, a prepossessing maiden of some 16 summers. <laughs> Amber's eyes just rolled real hard. Eva's doing her thing, being a 16-year-old girl, going ice skating, etc. Will was working uh, as a farmer. He was said to have a good reputation around town. And then there's just tons of other kids around. <laughs> so I do have to note something I wanted to get out there. We have fairly normal names for most of their children, but Simon's very first child was a daughter named Steraphine. 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 Rolls right off the tongue. Sounds like something you would use, like... I, fe- I feel like I saw ads for that to, like, cure eczema or something. Yeah. <laughs> Steraphine clears it right up. So Eva and Will are half-siblings, close in age, 16 and 19, and also just close in general. Van Brunt, Happy Bob, is boarding with this big family. And Bob does what Bob does, which is fall for Eva. Doesn't matter that he's seven years older than her. And then Bob does what Bob does, apparently, and proposes to her. Now, from this point on, we have a lot of he said, she said going on. So I'm going to give two versions of a couple different stories. Early October, 1886... This is what, uh, on Murder by Gaslight, Wilhelm characterizes as, quote, more of a threat than a proposal. Because, uh, Happy Bob promised that he would shoot Eva if she married anyone else. So, it's me or nobody. She said that when he proposed, he said they would have to live or die together. Creepy. And this man is living in her house. I mean, at this point, you have to say yes just to buy time and find a way out. Yeah, exactly. Be like, Dad, we need to get him out of here. We need police present when I tell him, no, I don't wish to marry him. Yes. Can I start carrying a gun all the time? He carries one. Can I start? (laughs) Yeah, I think we need to do some shooting. Yeah. Van Brunt says that they'd been engaged for just an hour and a half when the crucial events of the story coming up happened. She says they'd been engaged for two weeks. They'd been engaged for some time between an hour and a half and two weeks. I don't know that they were engaged at all. Well, I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and put retroactive scare quotes around engaged because I think when somebody like, coerces you into it by threatening your life, it's definitely a little bit one-sided. Well, and I feel like I saw in the paper and I didn't put it in my notes because I didn't think it was very pertinent at the time, but it was like two days before this incident that... Happy Bob had gone to a jeweler to pr- 
price engagement rings. Mm-hmm. Didn't buy one, though. I don't know if you necessarily needed a ring to pop the question at that point in time. It might have just been kind of a formality that came along later. Yeah, I don't know. I just remember that the rings were $2 and up. Oh, but they both say they were engaged. Oh, I well. mean, on her side, she's like, yeah, because uh, he was going to kill me otherwise. <laughs> so, so that is the one area where their two stories are the same. Sometime after the engagement, and I lean more towards her timeline, she told Van Brunt that her parents would not allow it. And he said, okay, well, we'll just get a secret marriage. And she was like, take the damn hint. I do not want to be around you. And she said, quote, there was another reason I told him I did not like him. (sighs) And one thing Happy Bob had a big problem with was Eva's friendship with her half-brother, Will. He told her, quote, this half-brother thing is all very funny. I am dangerously jealous, end quote. And she just thought, well, he's just joking around. It's just, you know, nothing's going to come of this. And also at one time he threatened to shoot another boy that she kept company with, as the papers put it. Yeah, so no company keeping for Ava. Even with your half-brother. Oh, he still has a penis. Yes, exactly. Eva's mother had set a bedtime for her around, I think, 10. And apparently her mom knew what was what. Her mom was like, yeah, you have a bedtime when you're hanging out with Happy Bob. Just, to, you know, I'm giving you an out. Yes. Take it. Take it. And so one night, soon after the engagement, Will and Eva were hanging out down like in the parlor area while Will waited to take what is alternately described as an early or a late train. It's late at night. It's, a, it's like a midnight 1 a.m. train, something like that. She's keeping him company. They were chilling and talking downstairs. And this woke up Happy Bob. Now, Eva said that as she and Will talked, she heard someone going up and down the stairs several times and spotted Happy Bob peering through the doorway at her and Will at one point. He said that he just threw on some clothes and went downstairs just the once, basically ordered Eva to bed, He said, you know, you're up past your bedtime. Your mom said you had to go to bed at 10 o'clock. And Eva said, quote, "Uh, that was only to apply when you were with me. At that response, he later said, I think she wanted to annoy me. And he also claimed that her mother was allowing this. And she had also sent Happy Bob to bed. She was like, okay, Eva, Happy Bob, both of you got to go to bed. (laughs) And then she was like, Eva, you can hang out with your half bro for a little while. Keep him company while he waits for the train. And Happy Bob was like, well, no, she only said that. So, quote, you and Will could sit up and spark. What does that even mean? Mash. They're brother and sister. Yeah, that's, that's icky. That's why I didn't even understand, like, the jealousy there. Just that, like, they're brother and sister. That's not a... Mm. No, no, it's, it's, it's gross, gross, gross. Definitely gives me the icks. So Eva said that she tried to defuse the situation, told Will he better go or he'd miss the train. And Will seemed to know what was up too, because he said, well, there'll there'll be another train. (laughs) I'm not leaving you alone with this bastard. This douche biscuit. 
The story varies after that as to whether she whispers to him or he whispers to her, he being Will. Either way, we don't even know the contents of that whisper. This little action was enough to send Happy Bob over the edge. He's, he's not happy. In his version, he said that he thought that, quote, being engaged, I ought to know what was going on, but she ignored me altogether. He said he lost control and was overcome with jealousy and rage. He either had his gun on him or he went back to his room, got his gun and came back down, at which point he shot Will. Some sources in initial reports say Will was shot in the temple from point-blank range. Later sources say he was shot in the chest from several feet. That last one is uh, also Happy Bob's version of what he did. Yeah, I had chest seven feet. Yeah. And this stuff might not sound like it's germane, but I have one word for you, and that is premeditation. So the differences between their story definitely... Their stories are different for a reason. <laughs> Who's telling the truth? I mean, I'm going to lean towards Eva. So, Looking for your next true crime fix? Check out the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour, a podcast that explores topics related to crime, cult, and controversy from a multidisciplinary perspective with a heavy dose of humor. The three women team covers a wide range of topics from modern cults to cannibalism to human trafficking to the story of the guy who lived in the cell next to Charles Manson. Catch interviews with authors, experts, and even a surprise prison call. So get cozy, get creepy, and get your juice at the Crime Juicy cocktail hour on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast fix. That's the Crime Juicy Cocktail Hour. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really any pedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like Nutting Day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. <laughs> nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. Where's the link? <laughs> In the show notes. (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. Basically, Happy Bob went to Eva's other brother, Fred, who was 18, said, hey, um, killed your brother. And he kept Happy Bob under guard and held him until the constables came. And Happy Bob really didn't try to escape. Yeah. So Eva's story on this was that she whispered to her brother, Will, and then Robert placed the revolver within half an inch of her brother's head and fired. Will threw up his hands to his head and fell to the floor. 
But she also said in her testimony that Will whispered to her. And then she started crying because she said, I couldn't hear what he said. And it was like his last words. So that upset her. So that's an interesting story changing, maybe. Well, it might not be a story changing, though. Because she whispered something to him like, oh, my God, this guy's insane. (laughs) And he stormed down with the gun and he whispered something in response and she never heard it. Yeah, yeah. And in a moment like that, when everything is, you know, to use the cliche, happening so fast. Yeah. 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 And trauma can also color and change memories. And seeing your half-brother murdered right next to you is uh, just a little on the traumatic side, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Happy Bob said of this in the aftermath, quote, Of course I'm sorry it's done, not that I cared for him, but it's his sister who is the greatest sufferer. I loved her dearly, and I killed Will Roy because I felt that he was making trouble between us. I was jealous when I shot him, and I shot to kill. I told Eva I would die for her, and now I am going to do it. I expect to hang for this, and I am not going to worry or grow thin over spilled milk. Yeah, spilled milk. Not blood. Milk. Yeah, yeah, milk. Milk. Sure. Okay, buddy. So, Happy Bob's lawyer will characterize the whole thing the way a paper here or there chose to print it in the slightly more scandalous vein that points the finger definitely more at Eva. Not that she shot her brother, but of course, you know, she's an evil woman and instigates all kinds of mayhem. So Eva was in her nightgown. She and Will were whispering and sitting close. Happy Bob watched from a crack in the door until he had seen too much. And then he stormed in and shot Will. And Happy Bob will continue along this line from this point on, saying that Will and Eva sat up until two or three regularly. He's definitely trying to color this as there was something going on between them. I did see a lot of newspaper reports referring to her being in her nightdress. And she said on the stand that she was wearing a jacket and a skirt over the nightdress. But just the fact that she would go out without a corset on. Oh my, the scandal. Around your brother. The neighbors are going to be talking. He explains his account of the events to a reporter soon afterwards. And after he explains what happened from his side, they ask if he's going to claim self-defense. His answer was, Peshaw, no. (laughs) Literally, Peshaw. 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 Peshaw, you douche biscuit. Will Roy would never quarrel with me to give me a chance. This is the first murder in the county in 25 years. And, of course, he pleads not guilty. And, of course, he's put on suicide watch. Of course. Yeah. He is appointed lawyers, as he has no money. But the lack of money is also a problem for them. They want some evidence of his suicide attempts and other behavior in Toronto because that could help with an insanity defense. But they just can't get it. So their gambit is basically going to be to try to get the jury to go for a lesser charge that won't lead to the gallows. On the other side, the prosecution was going for first-degree murder. And one paper put it like this as far as, you know, what material they could potentially use for their defense. Quote, there is so much in favor of the insanity dodge. 
They mentioned his hip and his seizures and his suicide attempts. They were like, you got a lot of material to work with. You need lawyers, come on. Yeah, we got a lot to use against you. So the trial begins on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to the compulsive wannabe Valentine. Yep. His attorneys are really saying basically, okay, so he's insane, his seizures caused it, and then he had jealousy that amplified the quote, and this is the newspapers, mental derangement. And Happy Bob testifies. And at that point, a few interesting pieces of evidence are entered into the record. One is a picture of a pretty girl, and on the back he'd written, My darling wife, Annie. This was Annie Leper, and he was engaged to her. Then a photo album comes out, and it contains more photos of women, including uh, women who lived in Leroy, Warsaw, and a cousin of his in Toronto. This might explain why he thought her half-brother might be trying to get into her nightdress. Uh, the album is called, and this is, he wrote this, The Conquests of Happy Bob of Canada, Castile, April 12th, 1886. The name and age of some of my mashes while in the Salvation Army. <sighs> my mashes. That um, is just, please don't mash. I'm just, I'm just asking you, please stop mashing girls. No, do the monster mash. So he was also, <laughs> he was also like a compulsive proposer. He just loved proposing. He was trying to catch fiancés like Pokemon. Yeah, got to catch them all. So then Eva also testified, and that's where we get her account of what happened. She said that she was afraid of Happy Bob and that she wouldn't have married him even if he hadn't killed her brother. Well, I think she was trying to get out of it anyway, but also was aware that there were so many red flags that she had to step carefully. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And the defense does the best with what they have, but, I mean, the community is up in arms. There's talk of lynching Happy Bob if there's not a guilty verdict that comes with the death penalty. Yeah, I love it. The, this is how you're going to vote, and this is what punishment he's going to get. Yes. Otherwise, we'll take care of that for you. <laughs> One way or another, this man is going to be hanging from the end of a rope. Yep, yep. Whether you put him there or we do. The jury goes to deliberation on February 19th. They leave at 3.15 p.m. and come back in at 6.10, so just shy of three hours. He is found guilty of first-degree murder, and is sentenced to hang in two months in April, on the 15th. Happy Tax Day, I guess? Happy Tax Day, Happy everyone. Happy Tax Day. All told, the trial is said to cost $1,500, which is about $47,000 today. He gives a speech after he is sentenced. Quote, I am surprised at the verdict of the jury. In my humble view, the evidence that they have produced don't bear out the fact of premeditation or deliberation. Many things have been said for the purpose of putting a halter around my neck. In the sight of God, Fred Roy committed perjury on the stand. 
Fred Roy, if you remember, was Eva's brother, not the one that was murdered. Obviously. We don't have any information that I could find about what he actually said. I was really curious about that, and just, they basically covered the beginning and the end of the trial. Must have happened in the middle. And he continued, I have admitted the shooting from the beginning. It was done through jealousy and under the spur of passion. I am not afraid of death. God knows no one can be more sorry that Will Roy came to such a terrible death. Oh, you know, except for his entire family. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're pretty sad about it. Continuing on, I loved Eva dearly. I committed this murder. I am not afraid to face death to atone for the crime. I pulled out the revolver and fired. I was I was innocent of trying to put the bullet in the poor boy's head. I pulled out the revolver and fired, immediately followed by, I was innocent of trying to put the bullet in the poor boy's head. But he also said, I intended to kill him. Like, I shot to kill. Mm-hmm. He's all over the place and just says some weird shit. So about 10 days before the scheduled execution date, there's a lovely article in the New York Times about a teacher who wants to read a letter from Happy Bob to her kindergartners. Oh, no. This uh, starts a little bit of an exodus of students from the school. And the paper says, quote, There are a number of women in the town whose sickly sentimentality for this good-looking young murderer not only nauseates the public, but the sheriff and the prisoner. So even Happy Bob apparently was like, No, please don't lust after me. Even though that seemed to be all he wanted out of life. His lawyers did appeal and the first date was put off. As he's waiting, the, there's a couple newspapers that I need to dig into more now because they had some little amusing bits. The Philadelphia News comments that, quote, he is beginning to feel a little uneasy about the death sentence. And they add, singular as this may seem, the young man may feel uneasier after it's all over. Well, I don't think you could argue that. <laughs> the Buffalo Times does. They print this bit from the Philadelphia News, and then underneath it, they have their own little commentary. Easier, dear fell, much easier. So I guess the Philadelphia News uh, thought that devils were going to be poking Happy Bob's ass in hell, and the you know, Buffalo paper was like, nah, it's, he's surely going to the good place. Happy Bob, after his hanging was postponed, was interviewed by a newspaper, and they asked him, about the Salvation Army, you know, how good of a Christian organization is this? His answer was, quote, I think there are a few good people get into the army. I mean, people who really want to benefit mankind. But I tell you, most of the soldiers and officers in particular are thinking more of womankind. The paper then takes 25 words to describe him leering. Could have done that a little shorter. Happy Bob continued, There is a class of young girls drawn into the meetings who are easily enough influenced by the officers and men for their own purposes and for bad purposes, and those are the girls they are after. I don't know, as I can just exactly describe the influence they have over the girls, but it just controls them, and lots of them have this influence. The interviewer then suggests that mesmerism was involved. Oh, of course. We haven't seen that in a week or two. Yes, everybody's getting hypnotized. Happy Bob says... Yes, I put it all down as something like that. 
And he ends the interview saying, quote, If the Salvation Army altogether was swept from the earth, it would be better, better for everybody. Not shockingly, he switches to Catholicism while he's in jail. He also picks up dominoes to pass the time. Everyone needs a hobby. Everyone needs a hobby. Dominoes and Jesus. The sentence was reaffirmed in December 1887. He has another appeal, which ends in the same result. Upon hearing the news, his lawyer said he was just going to pass this up to the governor rather than even tell Happy Bob about the news. Quote, I still believe, this is the lawyer speaking, okay? I still believe there was no premeditation and the boy should be given a life sentence for the murder done in a jealous passion instantly after an act by his intended, which would have rushed blood to the brain of a far cooler-blooded person than my client. An act by his intended, which would have pissed off someone even more cooler-blooded, is what he's saying. He's saying, Eva... This would have made anyone mad. Yeah, Eva was getting it on with her half-brother, and Happy Bob caught them, and anybody would have gotten pissed off at that. I don't think that's what was going on. I don't believe it either. Not one bit. No. But... Apparently, some people around town believe it. Uh, the summer after the conviction, Eva and her mother both bring slander cases against a local man. Quote, both suits were based upon alleged remarks made by the defendant against the moral character of the plaintiffs. Somebody in town, one dude in town, is slamming both Eva and her mother and saying that they're lacking in moral character. Hmm. There's also the Buffalo Evening News saying, quote, from her face and actions, referring to Eva, a great many people considered her the cause of the murder. Why? She didn't pull the trigger. She didn't instigate or ask. Like, she had a little bit of an attitude with a stalker. Who was living in her house. Who was living in her house, but probably living in her house because he was stalking her. Yes, Literally a stalker living in your own house and threatening to kill you if you don't marry him, who carries a gun around all the time. And she had the temerity, the unmitigated goal, to tell him that her bedtime only applied when she was hanging out with him. How dare she? Okay, so Buffalo Evening News is going on our list of, uh, we're gonna time travel back to this point in time, find out who this writer was, just give him a quick, quick slap across the face. I mean, it doesn't have to be quick. No, no, it doesn't. I think that I want to use him to practice my acupuncture. <laughs> that could be fun. He's going to look like uh, Pinhead from, from Hellraiser. It really doesn't hurt that much. Hardly at all. Well, that's because I'm not doing it. Oh, true. Yeah, if I go back in time, I'm doing this as like a torture chamber thing. This is not going to be real acupuncture. Like, I'm going to take your sewing needles. I was just going to suggest my sewing needles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to embroider on his face. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you have glitter thread? Yes, I do. Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so, once again, Happy Bob is sentenced, and he's sentenced with the death penalty. Once again, the execution is set for April 
this time a year later, after the first scheduled date. And then in the run-up to that, something inexplicable happens. I cannot understand this. I cannot defend this. I guess maybe I can, I can see my way to it, but I hate it. Eva and her brother Fred were boarding at a house in Buffalo. She had an attack of what the papers call brain fever. Then she went home to Castile and had another attack. And after this, she had a change of heart. She decided she supported Happy Bob and did not want him to hang. On April 10th, just a few days before the scheduled hanging, she wrote a letter to the sheriff that said this, Mr. Gardner, please excuse the liberty I take in writing this. I think that the general public have a wrong opinion in regard to my feeling toward this sad affair. It is not my desire, as some people believe, that Robert Van Brunt should be executed. God knows that I would gladly save my life, well, save his life were it in my power to do so. I freely forgive him for all the suffering he has caused me, which has been unlimited, and I'm sure my brother Will would feel the same as I do towards him, had he lived. Very respectfully, Eva Roy. This is, um, weird. It's weird. It's not that long. I mean, it's like a year and a half after the murder. I just feel like I would still have some anger. And granted, it doesn't change anything one way or the other, because even if he's not hanged, he'll still be in jail for life. But it's still just, you know, he, he'll be off the streets. And she says she doesn't want him on the streets. She's like, no, I don't want that. He's still dangerous. But she just doesn't want the death penalty, which, you know, if, she's, if she has a lot of conviction in her religion and her religion is against that, then I guess I can see it. But Or what if she just wants him to suffer more? <laughs> well, if she does, she's pretty passionate about this because she gets her mother's permission and then rushes off to Albany to tell the governor her feelings. And she hurries away because she knows that if she doesn't go quickly, her dad or Fred will stop her. So it seems like this is a house divided. It is a house divided. But, like, part of me is really rooting for her to be just, like, trying to put this, like, face of a cheerful girl out there into the world. And really, she's just vindictive as fuck. <laughs> and it's just like, he doesn't want to live. You're giving him what he wants. <laughs> Governor! Yeah? Yeah? That's... I kind of like it <laughs> as a theory. Kind of like it. I'm going to spin it whatever way I want to. So Eva talked to both the sheriff and the governor's attorney, and she insists that she does not believe there was premeditation. But no dice for her. The day prior to the execution... Happy Bob follows his routine, talks with the deputy until 2.30 a.m., and then he's up at 5.30 a.m. Well, I mean, you can sleep when you're dead. Yeah, well, yeah, true. And, quote, partook of a heartier breakfast than many a dyspeptic eats. He had ham and eggs. Lunch was a porterhouse steak and poached eggs. Supper was cake and tea. 
It said that scores of the Catholic Church members in the area had come to call on him in the lead up to the execution. And by his execution day, he had a stack of letters three inches thick from all over the U.S. and Canada. A doctor visits and says, uh, you know, night before the execution, but he's doing fine. Actually, we know even his pulse was 78. Like, I've never known quite this much about somebody going to the gallows. Then he had a late night meal of two boiled eggs, a fried egg, a biscuit, and tea. He's hungry. This man has had in one day a lot of eggs. That is a lot of eggs. That's a ton of eggs. He had ham and eggs for breakfast, poached eggs with his porterhouse steak, and then he has two boiled eggs and a fried egg. So he's had probably, let's say, two eggs with breakfast. Maybe even since they said it was more than a dyspeptic would eat. Three eggs. Porterhouse steak and, let's say, two poached eggs. We're at five now. And then late night meal of two boiled eggs and a fried eggs. We're at eight. Eight eggs now. Eight. In one day. In one day. Then after his eighth egg of the day, he smoked a cigar and took a bath after midnight. He talked to the deputies. He did a bunch of praying. He made some tea and, quote, drank it with a relish. And some more eggs. <laughs> Probably some more eggs, yes. He made egg drop tea. <laughs> there you go. And then the morning of Friday, April 13th, 1888, is upon us. Here it is, Friday the 13th. Happy Friday the 13th to all of you out there. Watch out for... No, black cats are fine. They're no threat to you. <laughs> They're no threat to you. I had a wonderful black cat. And she ran in front of me all the time because she was blind in her old age. And <laughs> she was actually my dad's cat, but she stayed with us sometimes. I like that cat. Squeak. Squeak was a good cat. Yeah, she was a good, she was a good girl. And yeah, I have a great life aside from my hips. Maybe mm. that's what did it. <laughs> no, I refuse to blame Squeak. It's probably the fact that I have horrific posture habits. And have for most of my life. So that's probably it. So uh, everybody, make sure you're wearing your lucky socks. And um, maybe just stay away from everybody and everything and you should be safe. Ladders, mirrors, you know, stuff like that. So it's the morning of Friday, April 13th. And he's due to be executed shortly after 10 a.m. He has a hearty breakfast. I'm just going to guess that there were like a million eggs in there. Five <laughs> eggs and toast. Yes. At 7 a.m., Eva comes to the jail and begs to see him, but the sheriff sends her home. The witnesses to the execution are the jurors, of which 10 of 12 are, the paper says, supervisors. And I'm thinking that's like township board supervisors, county supervisors, something like that. But it's very strange to me that somehow this jury ended up being made up see, five, six of, of people in positions of local power. I took that as witnesses to the execution, like they're supervising the execution. But they said 10 of 12 of them were supervisors. But all 12 of them weren't there. Yes, they were. Oh, were I, they? I counted 12 names, yeah. Ew. Yeah, it's strange. So I'm not 100% sure that that means that they were, you know, in some sort of elected official position, but it seems that way. That's really weird. There were also deputies, county officials, and religious officials. It's a sunny, beautiful day, and Happy Bob insists on wearing a white shroud. He ascended the scaffold, 
quote, with firmness. He made no speech. Thousands came into the village, quote, by rail and wagon and on foot. The Buffalo Evening News tells us, quote, the public who hoped to see Van Brunt hanged were disappointed. They hung about the courthouse and jail and only knew by the jailer's signal when the fatal drop fell. The undersheriff, who was the sheriff's brother. Nepotism. I'm seeing just a little bit of corruption in this local government. Seems that way. Yeah. Pulls the lever at 10.18 a.m. And by the way, this is happening in the town of Warsaw because Castile, not having had a murder in 25 years, isn't super equipped for a hanging. I guess if there's a handy gallows nearby, you won't bother building one of your own. Yeah. He, uh, Van Brunt, Happy Bob, is declared dead 14 minutes after the lever is pulled. He actually is buried in a Catholic cemetery. I don't understand this. So he actually converted while in jail. No, I know that. How can a murderer be buried in a Catholic cemetery? They don't allow suicides. Murder is also, just just in case you didn't notice, in the Ten Commandments. I can actually explain this to you. So he converted after the crime was committed. (gasps) And if you are baptized... You're washed clean of your sins. sins. Okay, I get it now. So yeah, if he got like baptized or whatever, or confirmed by the church in any way, whatever it might be, he's free of sin. And can be buried in a Catholic cemetery. And I think even when he was hanged, he had a rosary on him. Mm. And so he had the beads and he kissed the crucifix. And he was super Catholic because that was his ticket to heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Salvation Army apparently wasn't going to do it for him. Nope. Had to switch teams. Yeah. There is actually a sort of a viewing of his body before he's buried. People filed by to get a look at him until 2 p.m. Then uh, at the interment of the remains, about 20 people stayed for that. Eva actually went home before any of the funeral stuff. She just wasn't there for it. Now, what happened to Eva? In 1888 or 89, she got married to a Bart Smith of Hornellsville, New York. The Potter Enterprise tells us this little gem. He is 22 years old and has been married three times. The first time he was about 15 years old, and his record in this line is notable. Another paper switches up the sarcasm. His record in this line has rarely, if ever, been equaled. I love it. Wow, 22 and divorced three times. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't know that they were divorces. He could be a widower. Oh, no. <laughs> he doesn't kill her. <laughs> so so even if he was going around killing his wives, he doesn't kill Eva. So, Speaking of marriages, Fred also got married soon after. Mm. According to the Buffalo commercial, quote, Fred Roy was arrested this morning on a charge preferred by a girl named Clara Fenton. The matter was settled by Roy marrying the young woman in the police court. Oh, my. And that's how I met your mother. <laughs> she pulled a happy bob on him. <laughs> Marry me or I will kill you. <laughs> or at the very least, send you to jail for a little while. 
As far as the rest of Eva's future, there are reports around that time that she and her husband are going to go on stage in the area. Apparently, she can sing. Oh! In 1890, they're joining some kind of traveling show, like a touring variety show that goes up the Erie Canal and probably stops in towns along the way. Uh, they will travel in their own boats, too, in number, starting at Buffalo and following the Erie Canal to Albany and return. So they got a little gig on a, on a variety show. She had a daughter, Claudia, in 1896. And her husband must have died at some point or they split up as she remarried Willis J. Masters at some point after 1903. I only know it was after 1903 because that's when his first wife died. <laughs> so it had to have been sometime after that, almost definitely. And he was a justice of the peace. So probably yes. not committing bigamy. Probably following rules. Like 96% chance. Uh, so he was a little older. He was 20 years older than her. Ew. Uh, he, his first marriage occurred when Eva was three years old. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the couple, him and his first wife, had two daughters who were uh, seven and ten years younger than Eva. So pretty close in age. She did outlive him, but, you know, he's 20 years older. He died in 1927, and in 1952, she died at the age of 82. Well, I'm glad she got a nice long life, at least. Absolutely, yes, yes. And that is the story of Happy Bob. Yeah, Happy, Happy Banana Sandwich Bob. Banana Sandwich. So... I have a recipe for you. Oh, hooray. This is courtesy of jellogallery.org. I knew. Well, when you told me about the Jello Museum, I knew we were in for it. Yes, this is the online home of the Jello Museum. And it's from Bright Spots for Wartime Meals, 66 Ration Wise Recipes, published in 1944. Would you like some olive relish? Yes. Okay. All right. So we're going to take some lime jello, hot water, vinegar, salt, uh, some sliced stuffed olives, sliced sweet pickles, and uh, diced celery. Dissolve jello in hot water. Add vinegar and salt. Chill. When slightly thickened, add remaining ingredients. Turn into small individual molds. Chill until firm. Unmold. Serve with fish or meat. Mix 12 molds. Mmm. Yum. Yum. I love my lime, olive, pickles, celery. <laughs> and just to buy the by, the Libarbian, I know, has some jello molds and many of these ingredients that came with it as one of the white elephant presents that came from our good friend Beast, who has also been on the show. So, uh, Libarbian, I think you need to make us some jello things. Yes, absolutely. I, I really... I will even donate to this cause, if you would like. I have, um, it's kind of similar to a muffin pan, but it is nine individual small bunt pans. Uh-huh. And so we can make several mold things. Excellent. Excellent. And I also know that she makes some damn good pickles. She does make some damn good pickles. We had them on our charcuterie board last night. 
It was good shark coochie. They were yum. They were yum, Librarian. So we also have a thank you to go to an anonymous donor. Um, not anonymous to me. <laughs> but anonymous to you. Anonymous to you. And they sent us uh, a one-time donation via our PayPal, which you can also do if you want, at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And it's just very much appreciated. And having an ongoing conversation with this person, uh, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> More to come, mayhaps. Possibly, yes. We'll see. We'll see what pops up. We'll see what pops up. That's how I date. <laughs> just see what pops up. So... So yes, uh, you can also join the Patreon that you heard a commercial for earlier in the show. You can tell a friend about us. That's free. You can rate and review us. That really helps. Uh, we're starting to grow more and it's wonderful and I love it. There are so many things about that that give me a little happy feeling uh, when somebody emails us something about the show. We had um, one of our listeners, Brian Kim, he donated to the GoFundMe. Oh, that's awesome. For the case we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so, yeah, this is just, it's very exciting. I love it when we get when we get the emails about new patrons. And I actually keep the notifications in my phone, like, on my <laughs> notification bar for a little while. I don't, like, just swipe them away because I'm like, I'm going to keep that for a little while. Because every time I pull that bar down, I'm like, yay. So, they like us. They really like us. They really like us. And we just got some new stickers. Oh, shoot. I left mine at the house. Don't worry about it, because we still got to come up with how we're going to do whatever giveaway we do for them. So, But yes, we have stickers that are going to be given away in some capacity. And I also need to uh, get some treacherous tart merchandise out to some people who sent us recipes. So mm. we're going to work on that in the next couple weeks. So, yeah, that's pretty much our show. And um, what you doing this week? Actually, I know what we're both doing. We are both going to be separately... Having hot baths. Yes. Yes, that is that is my plans and Christy's plans as well. I'm going to go home. She's going to stay here and we're both going to take a very hot bath mm -hmm. and do nothing mm -hmm. for a minute. <laughs> yes. It is chilly and rainy and it's like provoking my allergies. And we were also drinking and last night. There was that too. Yes. I may have been up until 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. So really, this is just what we're going to do. We're done talking to you now. And you all have a lovely day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we will go and enjoy our baths. Again, separately. Get your minds out of the gutter, people. So, you know, um, don't go around getting engaged to 15 girls. I'm just going to say it. Don't mash girls. Don't mash girls, but wear your lucky socks. Yes. Happy Friday the 13th. And bye. Bye. My sources this week oh. are... I remembered for once. The UK Army website, History of the Scots Guards, The Salvation Army on um, Wikipedia, Robert Wilhelm on Murder by Gaslight, Famous Americans, JelloGallery.org, Find a Grave, and from Newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia. Just a whole bunch of newspapers, just a, like a ton. <laughs> so mine was Murder by Gaslight and then new Newspapers.com. Okay, there we go. Yeah. All right.